Turn with me over to the book of John, chapter 20. John chapter 20. The title of this message is Finding God. Finding God. We're going to look at John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. John 20, 1 through 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to, him, said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple, verse 3, went forth. And they were going to the tomb and the two were running together. And the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw linen wrappings lying there but did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. And there the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple, verse 8, who had come first to the tomb, then also entered and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, verse 13, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, verse 15, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, please tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my, my, my brethren and tell them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, verse 18, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Lord, help us as we study. This is one of the most complete accounts of the resurrection of Christ. And it amplifies a couple of things. One, that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. The fact that he goes through so many details to talk about what what Peter looked in and saw and then what John looked in and saw and that they saw the same thing and then Mary looked in and saw three, three witnesses as to nobody being there and the fact that Jesus actually revealed himself to somebody who didn't expect him to be there all these, these individual little tidbits of information allow us the privilege of understanding somebody from an objective source is writing even though they are involved in it saying this thing really happened and here are all the witnesses that confirm it. And then we've also got the reality that the disciples didn't believe any of it. That even though Jesus had told them and they had been with Christ longer than anybody else and more often and he had told them on a regular basis I'm, I'm going to rise from the dead. The chief priests and the leaders are going to take me, beat me and on the third day I'll rise from the dead. He said it just like that and then he said it in allegory form when he was in the temple talking to the 
religious leaders letting them know, if you destroy this temple, meaning his body, in three days, I'll rise it back up. I'll raise it back up. And so in every way possible, he was trying to communicate to to the disciples that it's going to be a bad couple of days, but wait till day three. It's going to be a whole lot better. Yet day three came and the disciples still didn't believe. It didn't register with them. Now, part of me, part of me says, I get it. What reference point did they have? It's not like anybody had done this before. Now, people have been raised from the dead. Elijah, a prophet in the Old Testament in 1 Kings, raised a young boy from the dead. And people have been raised from the dead by other people. Namely, even Elisha, Elijah's protege. His bones, Elisha's bones, raised the guy from the dead who his buddies were trying to bury him. And some marauding bands from another people group were coming and going to attack him. And they saw the funeral procession. And they said, we got to just throw this guy in the nearest tomb we can find. And so they threw him in a tomb, and it happened to be Elisha's bones. And when the body touched the bones of Elisha, the body came alive. I mean, I don't even know what that looks like. The guy's mummified. (laughs) Hopping around like that. I mean, people have been raised from the dead, but they had been raised from the dead by the power of God through human agency. Somebody came and used their faith to change the circumstances. Nobody had ever risen from the dead all by themselves. Just like got up. And so I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, disciples, I get it. Yet there's no excuse for doubt. No excuse for unbelief. Jesus told you, you should have believed what he said. And in our day, there is no excuse for not believing what Jesus says about you. You need to read your Bible and find out as much as you possibly can about what he has said so that you can hold on to it and not believe either what you say, others say, or what the devil says. Hold on to that because it's going to be life to you in the days to come. And you're going to, re- you're going to need to remember, this is what God said to me about this circumstance so I can handle it better. The disciples didn't get it. And everything about this moment shouts about victory. I mean, they were going to piece it together later. But the fact that Jesus rose from the dead all by himself says everything about who he was and what he did. All of us have an appointment with the grave. Every one of us. Your goal should be to, to do your best to be late. That should be your goal. Eat well. Work out. Do what you're supposed to do. I'm eating weeds and seeds. <laughs> I eat meat very rarely. Yes, don't, don't eat a lot of red meat. Not chicken, a lot of fish. Work out five times a week. Hate every bit of it. <laughs> I mean, I'm not happy. I'm just not happy. I like sweets. I like a ribeye. I like ribs. I like all that stuff. <laughs> but I discipline myself because I want to be around. And I not just want to be around, I don't want to be at a hospital around. Now, it's not, that is not to say that anybody who, who's in a hospital somehow did something wrong. I just realized that if I can do the best I can at caring for my body the way I should, then I can probably stave off a lot of things that would normally have come on me and maybe even be late for my appointment with the grave. But we can't cancel it. I'd like to cancel it, but we can't. Ever since Adam, all of us, everybody. Has, has made their appointment at one time or another. Jesus was the only one who permanently not only made it, but defeated it. 
So he died. And, and if you look at span of life, he, he got there early. A man should live much longer than 33 and a half years. And so he was cut short, but it was in the right timing of God. And as a result of his death, he not only got his appointment with the great, but he defeated the power of death in the process and ruined the experience of the grave for all of us. Hallelujah. We don't have to go through what everybody else had to go through prior to that moment. And the reason being, Jesus affectionately is called the second Adam. The first Adam had a, had a great opportunity. Walking with God in the cool of the day in the garden. Beautiful house. I mean, anything on cribs was looking like a shack <laughs> compared to Eden. A shack. A fixer-upper compared to Eden was all that. And he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as a result, God said, if you eat from that thing, you're going to die. And he couldn't produce anything more than what he was. So death came into him, and he's producing people ever since. We're all his kids. All of us now have the sentence of death in us as soon as we are birthed from the womb. We got an appointment with the grave. And God wanted to change that. He didn't want people to die. They were intended to live forever because they were made in his image. We couldn't be eternal because God is the only one who is that. Eternity is that which has no beginning and no end. It's beyond our ability to grasp. That's who God is. And God has to be that because if God has a beginning, then somebody made God. Then whoever made God must be God. And when God was made, he is not God because he was made. And God can't be made because anything that's made can be destroyed and God can't be destroyed. Are you with me? It is a circular argument. You got to keep up because I don't have a lot of time this morning. <laughs> He's eternal. No beginning, no end. He just always was. And this is why he told, uh, told, told Moses when Moses said, who are you? Trying to figure out who's sending me to, to Jerusalem. He said, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac, Isaac and Jacob. He said, yeah, but what's your name? I know by whom you identify yourself, but what's your name? He said, I am. Any other name kind of defines me in a different way. I, I just am. If you were to ask me 10 billion years ago, I still am. If you, if you, if you ask me 10 billion years from now, am. He's eternal. He's eternal. There just never was a time when he wasn't. He always is, always has been, is. But we are, we're supposed to be immortal, meaning that has a beginning, mortality. Mortal, immortal means you have a beginning, but not supposed to have an end. And because of our, our disobedience, we were cut short. And so we all got an end. But God didn't want us to have an end, so he decided, I'm going to send somebody else who fixes this problem. I'm going to send a second Adam. And he's going to be tempted in every way just like Adam. And that's why those first three temptations that Jesus had at the beginning of his ministry where after he fasted 40 days, the enemy came to him and said, listen, I know you're hungry. Why well, turn that stone to bread? Hey, you're, you're, you're the son of God. You can do that. And, and he could have. And it would have, been, it would have not been wrong except that it was inspired from the wrong source. So he wasn't going to obey another being other than God. And so he said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The enemy said, oh, you know your Bible, okay. Yeah, I got something for you. Here, go, go to the temple. Throw yourself off there. The Bible says the angels will give charge concerning you, and you won't even strike your foot against a stone. How about that? 
Yeah, but it also says, you don't know your Bible well enough, it also says you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And that would be putting him to the test because there's no redemptive benefit, no point in me throwing myself off the temple except to say, God, can you do it? And then he said, okay, well, listen, how about if I show you all the kingdoms of the earth? I'll give them to you if you just bow to me. He says, you shall worship and serve the Lord your God and him only. Now, three things. Adam had the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. The food looked good to him. It was good for food, and it was desirable to make him wise. It fed his ego. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth ego. Food, you need it. Turn the stone into bread. Ah, throw yourself down. Lust of the flesh, you can do anything. And Jesus won every one of them, saying, we're Adam lost. I won. Now, for the, that was just the beginning of his ministry. The next three years were phenomenal. And all he did was good to people and never sinned, not once in his life. Making him then qualified to pay the price for everybody else and become the substitutionary death for you. Where God did not want you to die. He needed somebody to fix it. If an altruistic human being were to come before God once and say, Lord, I love humanity so much, I would love to die for their benefit. God would say, that's beautiful. But do you deserve to die? Well, you know, I'm not Hitler. We think somehow that if we haven't done the worst, we're really good. That's how messed up we are. We are so messed up that we have to compare ourselves with the worst to feel better about ourselves. Well, I'm not Hitler. Well, wait, wait, wait. Adam and Eve didn't commit murder. They just ate from the tree and they died. What have you done? Oh, well, like, I don't think I can count them. I, I can't remember them all. Right. Then you must suffer for your own sin. You can't take the place of anybody else. There's only one person who could, and that was Christ. He lived a perfect life. So when death came to him, it couldn't hold him. He made his appointment with the grave, but he defeated it in the process and allowed us then the privilege of, of partaking in that benefit in that he died our death and then gave us his life. Oh, this Christian life is hard to live. It is. In fact, it's impossible if you don't have Jesus. There is no way you can live it because it requires the life of God to live it. And if you do not have the life of God in you, if you have not been what we call, the Bible calls, born again, then you are still dead in your trespasses and in your sins. And dead means this. You ever, you've been to a funeral. You can go and yell in the, the, the beloved's ear all day you want. They do not respond. Poke them with a needle. They do not respond. When you are dead, you can't fix yourself. You can't respond as you should. The only thing that gets a dead person spiritually awake is God speaking. All of a sudden, life comes on the inside when a person receives the benefit that Christ gave on the cross. And now you can begin to hear your senses come alive and you can live the way you should because Jesus has taken his place on the throne of your soul. And for 34 years, I've been doing this. Perfect. <laughs> Nobody could ever confuse Brett with being perfect. But consistent only because I have surrendered every day of my life to try to be a little bit better in the next 24 than I was in the last. Surrendered who I am, realizing that I am a mess. 
And the only way I can be of any benefit to me or anybody else is if I give myself completely to my God. When I surrender, when I show the weakness that is on the inside of me to be able to follow, then he gets strong on the inside of me. And I can have a track record that says if you put it in in, in NFL terms, I'm 11 and 5 every year. Y'all don't follow the NFL, obviously. I'm, I'm, I'm playoff ready. Every year, every year I'm playoff ready. I lost five, but I won twice as many more. This is the victory that Christ gives. Mary came to the tomb. And she was out of her mind. Now, you got to understand something about Mary. Mary was from a place called Magdala. And um, it, wasn't, it wasn't a place of renown. It was just a normal city. But she wasn't a normal woman in that city. She was a woman out of whom was cast seven devils, seven demons. And I realized that demonic possession or influence is not something that is commonly talked about today and is probably looked at as something that is archaic and so old world that it should not even be discussed as a legitimate malady today. But demons are real. And I've had the... as, As a pastor, I do this. I get with people who are influenced, if not possessed, by demonic spirits, and I cast them out. It's not an excuse or an explanation for all maladies that come on people, whether psychological or physical, but they do happen. And I've seen them go, and I I, I see what happens when when a person deals with one devil, one demon. Oh, they got issues. Eh, They can manage it. They have a pretty smile on when they come to church. They can function well in in, in their employment. All's good. But they still got issues. When they got two, they can barely navigate life. When you got seven, oh, my God in heaven. You got real problems. And this woman probably had a reputation in Magdala, meaning everybody knew who she was. Oh, that Mary? Yes, stay, stay away from her. She got issues. And many of those issues may have been inspired by some man or men who did not treat her well. Generally speaking, at least that's not a foreign idea to a woman. And so she had so many problems. And here comes Jesus, the only one who probably ever treated her well. Comes and casts out all these devils, and now she can think right for the first time in years. A man who really cared about her for more than just his own desires, but wanted to help her. Jesus didn't even say, follow me. She just got up and came. Whatever her job was, she quit. And she just followed Jesus. She became part of the band. She wasn't a part of the disciples. But she was, cho- she was listed with all the women who followed. And we don't even see that she had a whole lot of money to give. She just wanted to be near him. And now she's coming to the tomb. And she's coming to the tomb because Jesus died two days earlier. And it was right before the Sabbath. They couldn't do any work on the Sabbath. It was a Hebrew law. And Jesus died right before. But... In order to bury a body, you had to mummify it. You had to prepare it, wrap it up, put spices on it, make sure that it was done done right so it could be preserved as long as possible. And they didn't have time to finish because the Sabbath came. And so they put the body in the tomb, and Mary would have to come back later and do it. And that's why she got up early, even before the sun, to come because her mourning process would be helped by at least finishing her care for Christ. All the things that that he had done for her, all all she wanted to do is help him. And this was helpful for her. And, And to show how much she cared about him and what he meant to her, 
She got there before Jesus' mama did. This woman really, really was grateful to God. Well, she comes. And I don't even know if she, she thought she'd be able to see him because the Jews heard this, this Jesus might just, you know, rise from the dead thing. And he said this. And yeah, we don't believe it. But his disciples might just steal the body and then claim he rose from the dead. And then we'd have a, a more difficult problem. Because how are we going to defend that? It was tough enough to try to beat him in life. How are we going to beat him in death? So, Rome, Pilate, would you please put an armed guard over the tomb so that nobody will come and steal the body? That's what they did. 36 warriors in front of a tomb to guard a dead body. They overestimated the courage of the disciples. <laughs> These guys weren't coming near there. They weren't interested. They ran as fast and far as they could away from him on the night of Gethsemane when he was taken. And when Peter showed up, he showed up incognito. And every time somebody recognized him, he said, I'm not him. (laughs) They overestimated the courage of these disciples. They're going to come and try to say, are you kidding me? But Mary comes thinking, maybe they'll let me in. They also had a a seal on the tomb, a Roman seal, that if anybody moved the stone, a 2,000-pound stone that was rolled in place and put in a V like this. Now, this was not a grave. It was a tomb, a sepulcher, a hewn-out hole from a side of a mountain that you could put a slab in upon which a body could be placed, and you could walk in, kneeled over, bent over, walk in, pay your respects, and leave. And there would be a, a, a rock that, that was hewn out from this area that would be replaced, and it would be held up by a little stone. And they would remove the stone, and the rock would fall into a V, and it would just rock until it's set. So if you wanted to remove the stone, you had to be a man. Are you listening to me? 2,000 pounds uphill? You're going to have to be like six men. And the disciples not only weren't courageous, nothing says they were weightlifters either. (laughs) Mary comes and she sees the tomb open and no guards. No guards. You know, she says, oh, who who stole the body? Wait a minute. We're the only ones who love him that much to steal his body. And Peter and John still sleep. Wait, no, who stole the, what? She runs back and says, somebody has taken our Lord. Peter and John run, and they come, and they look at this. Oh, God, she's gone. Man, I don't know what happened. Maybe we should have tried to fight the soldiers. I don't know. And they are so despondent, they just quit and go on back home. But Mary stays. Sometimes we're looking for Jesus in the wrong spot. We search for him, but he's not where we last left him. He's not where we think he ought to be. Mary and Joseph were going down to Jerusalem for the feast every year. Jesus was 12 at this time. He'd been down there dozens of times, and they had taken him. They start leaving from the feast. And as they leave, they go a day's journey away. Now, they recognize Jesus after a day's journey away is not with them. Now, before you begin to think that somehow they're neglectful, and parents, how could they not know their child was not with them after a whole day? It took a whole day to figure out what kind of parents don't watch their children. How hard was it to raise Jesus? <laughs> I mean, what did he do wrong? He always made great decisions. 
he never disobeyed. I mean, you gave him the reins to the donkey every time. Keys to the car. You gave, take it, boy. You, you good. You good. You let him go out and play whenever he wanted, come in when he wanted, because he always came in at the right time and played with the right people. And if he played with the wrong people, the wrong people got right. I mean, he was amazing. <laughs> he was amazing. So why in the world do you have to watch him like a hawk? You don't have to. You know he's doing right. So they go a day's out, and they're thinking, okay, he's probably spending the night with John the Baptist having a sleepover. All school. And then they realize, uh-oh, he's not around. Oh, they start putting this picture on milk cartons. Amber alert, amber alert. And they run back in the city, and they're looking every place. They don't find him for three days. Now they're beginning to think, is God going to judge us because we are such horrible parents? Look at what we've done. We've lost God. We've lost God. How do you lose God? We've lost God. God forgive us. We, we, we lost your boy. They run to the temple not to try to find him. But now that's the last place they're going to try to get prayer. <laughs> help us, please. We feel like God will help us if we pray to him and ask him to find his boy because we lost him. And they walk in the temple and there Jesus is talking with the PhDs of the day, ruminating about everything that's important. And they're sitting there thinking, wow, wow. Mary comes to him as respectfully as you can and trying to correct the one who's right. <laughs> Says to him, do you know what you have done to us? He says, as respectfully as he can, why didn't you know I'd be here? You want to find God, you'll find him here in his house. Now, we may not present him as well as most. We're a church that has flaws, and I am probably the greatest one who understands how flawed we are. But when it comes to presentation, God shows up in our midst, not because we are so good, but because we know we're not and we desperately need him, so we invite him. We say, please, come and help us. We as people don't know exactly how we should worship you as well as we should. We're doing our best. We're following your word. But help us become what we need to be that makes the environment such that you want to abide. God doesn't get a whole lot of invitations. Not many people are saying, please, come hang out with me today. Would you like to come to the club with me today, God? You get my point. There aren't many places where people want God to be with them. He comes because we invite him. And we work hard at building an environment where he wants to stay. You may not be able to find him in your workplace. You may not be able to find him in your home. You may not be able to find him in places where you want him to be the most. But by the grace of God, you ought to be able to find him here. Secondly, when she found him, she didn't recognize him. She turned around and Jesus was behind her, but she thought it was the gardener. When you come in here, we may not be what you're used to. I get that. I mean, if you come from the African-American experience, you're used to robes and folks swaying in choirs and Hammond B3s and preachers that hoop. I don't hoop. And I'm not talking about basketball. I don't hoop. <laughs> if, you, if you come from the, the more high church or, or, or white tradition, you're used to hymns being sung, verses 1, 3, and 5. <laughs> you're used to things being done a certain way. Folk don't get loud. There's not a lot of expression. You're not used to a, a pastor that's Shimonian down here and, and hopping around like the Easter Bunny with the songs are playing. You're not used to that. And he sits on, a sta on the stage with a tie, a bow tie, and he just talks and he tells stories. And he preaches in the middle and gets really loud. I know I am an acquired taste. 
I get that. And our worship team doesn't sing what you're used to. They don't sing like you're used to. The first song was a little syncopated with a little R&B. The second one was all white rock and roll. And I'm thinking, who are we? Who are we? Ah, and I got kids in my house, black kids. It's like Justin Bieber. Help me. Help me. This is what I build. I know we're strange, I get that. And if we are not your cup of tea, go find your flavor. But I beg you, don't make this the only time, one out of two, that you show up to try to find God a year. I'm so so happy you're here. I really am, I love it. There are people still trying to park. I'm not kidding. They were backed up on 28 while we were singing. They have to wait till the next service to get in. I am so happy you're here. But I want more for you than just attendance. I want you to find God and make him relevant on Monday, not just Sunday. Even though you may not recognize he's here, listen to him. We may not present him as well as he should be presented, but we're doing our best. Listen to him. When she finally heard him, he said, Mary, oh, God loves to talk your name. He loves to speak it. And he can say it unlike anybody else. He can say it better than me. And when he says it, it's one of those things that you know he said it. I mean, when you know you've heard God it's one of those things where people come to you and say, well, how did, what did he sound like? I, said, I don't know. I just heard God. I just know it was God. How do you know it wasn't your imagination? I don't know. I just know it was God. You know what his voice sounds like. And he's speaking your name today. When you recognize him, what you need to do is turn. It says, when Mary heard Jesus say her name, she turned. And turning means this. I'm not going to do this life this way anymore. I'm turning around 180, and I choose to do life this way. I'm going to run to Jesus, not stand away from him. Turn. And then when you turn, it says she clung to him. Now, it, it doesn't say she clung to him. Jesus said, stop clinging to me. So it went kind of like this. Mary. And why did she do that? Because she lost him once. And she wasn't going to lose him again. She clung to him so tightly that he had to say, girl, you're going to have to let me go. Come on now, you're going to have to let me go. I haven't even gone to the Father. I haven't even gone to the Father. God loves people so much that he's willing to delay an appointment with the Father to come to you. He knew this. Mary was so broken on the inside, she couldn't last another hour without knowing I'm alive. Peter and John were there. They could go probably a couple of weeks. (laughs) Disciples just thick-headed folk, just like you and me, just thick-headed. Mary was broken on the inside and had not been fully whole, not healed, and he knew she can't last another hour. She is weeping. I mean the kind of weeping where snot's coming out of your nose, don't make no sense, hollering and screaming. He had to say, Daddy, could you just wait a minute? Could you just, could you wait a minute? She needs my help. God's willing to help you now. He's willing to help you. 
He doesn't want you to wait another hour. He said, you're going to have to stop clinging to me because I got to go to the Father, but I got an assignment for you. You make the greatest testimony I've got yet. Go tell your brothers. Go tell them. After we cling to Christ and we need to cling to him, I met him 34 years ago and all I've been doing is holding on for dear life. I haven't been the best follower. I've made mistakes. I've blown it here or there. But I haven't done anything that's disqualified me from ministry. I could have been a better dad. My kids deserve that. I could have been a better pastor. You deserve that. But one thing I've done well is I've just hung on for dear life. God, I'm not what I should be. But I know if I keep hanging on, you'll make me what I should be. And because I keep hanging on, somehow or another, he increases my ability to tell you he's alive. He's real. So do it for somebody else. Go tell somebody. Go tell the brethren out there that you know that Jesus is risen. And he's, he, wants to, he wants them to have a daddy just like he does. Let's pray. God, I'm asking for your grace and mercy, please. Empower us and help us to be the kind of people we ought to be.